Welcome to Just Around the Corner with Dennis Mansfield, a podcast focused on inspiring and resourcing leaders. Whenever we talk about business, we have to talk about government too. In fact, the word government often conjures up images of anything from city street sweepers to fixing water lines, from police to fire, or just keeping us protected. But the word itself, government, separated from cities and counties, states and nations, first means to control, to influence, or regulate a person, an action, or a course of events. It first applies to self-government, to you and to me, and how we regulate our lives. Then and only then can the word government have any firm meaning when applied to communities, to counties, and to our country. Join me, please. I'm your host, Dennis Mansfield. My guest on today's episode of Just Around the Corner with Dennis Mansfield is Mr. David Ripley, the executive director of a public policy group located in the Pacific Northwest in Idaho. Welcome to the podcast, David. Well, it's great to be here, Dennis. You know, my goal today is for business and leaders, interested citizens, to hear about the work that you do and how it impacts them, how it impacts their businesses, their families, and ultimately their very lives. We'll get to that in in a little bit. First, though, I'd like to talk about self-government. David, tell a little about your own life and the self-government and how that worked or didn't work in your life, ultimately bringing you to the Pacific Northwest and then really to a relationship with God through Christ. How did uh, faith play a part in your life from when you came out to Idaho? Well, I came came to Idaho in 1984 uh, as a card-carrying socialist. Uh, I was hired by the National uh, Education Association come out here to help uh, elect Richard Stallings to Congress uh, and uh, was successful. I decided to stay because um, Idaho was in desperate, desperate need of, you know, more socialism. <laughs> and so I ended up starting a political consulting firm uh, with the object of electing as many uh, Democrats as possible to the legislature. And uh Unfortunately, I was also very successful at that. Um, the The concept of self-government, uh, you know, with respect to how I manage my own life, um, you know, is a very interesting way to open this because the fact is uh, I was very good at managing politics, campaigns, and public affairs, really, but terrible at managing my own life and governing my own behavior. Um, I developed quite a drinking problem during that period of time. Um, And kind of funny, the more successful I was professionally, the uh, less successful I was in my private life, right? And really, it was a matter of uh, no self-government and or self-will run riot, as uh, they say in the AA program. And um, I 
I ended up getting, uh, I went into treatment actually, I think about, uh, 1991, um, several years passed and, um, the, uh, the horror of abortion, which I had always supported as just part of the litmus test of what liberals do, right? Um, I hadn't really thought much about it as, except as a matter of, you know, bumper sticker politics until, uh, the woman I was married to at the time decided to abort our child in uh, 1994. And the reality of that came crashing in. The reality of abortion came crashing in on me pretty hard. And uh, I I was uh, desperate to find a way to save his life. We had just seen his picture in a, on the ultrasound, uh, which I had in my wallet, and... Uh, so there was no doubt we were talking about, you know, a baby. It was, this was a person. And the announcement that she was going to get an abortion was uh, shocking to me, frankly. And I went to uh, see several attorneys, liberal Democrat friends of mine, which I had to pass a load of uh, in those days, and asked for their help. You know, I wanted to go to court. I wanted to find something to do to try to save him. And they just laughed at me. It was like, uh, yo, David, you know, where have you been, right? Uh, you you have no rights to go into court. I mean, no judge is going to consider, you know, a restraining order designed to protect that baby. Uh, you know, that's the fundamental of role, Right. Fathers don't exist until the baby is born, and then it's a matter of, you know, child support and all those kinds of issues. But in terms of protecting your child in the womb, that just is not possible. That abortion did happen. Um, I uh, attempted suicide as a result of that, largely because of my guilt over my inability to defend him, but... As part of that process, I began to realize that I had spent my adult years up to that point supporting a regime which allowed for this to happen, and a political culture and a and a legal culture which disregarded not just fathers' rights, of course, but the very existence of that innocent life. And whatever crimes I committed, that baby was innocent. And I felt like that baby had been executed without appeal for my failings as a person. And I just couldn't deal with that, with that guilt and responsibility, not just for his life, but for the lives of an unknown number of babies that I had played some part in helping to destroy. Suicide seemed like a very rational option and about the only option to get out from underneath all that. And um, I went up to the St. Joe to uh, found a nice place to park the truck and attempted uh, suicide through an overdose of drugs. And, and I knew if I could just get to sleep that I would be 
you know, relieved of all that and enter some state of bliss or non-existence. I don't know. It's a very vague, right? The Lord had different ideas uh, because I did not go to sleep and uh, it became dawn in North Idaho and uh, the drugs were beginning to wear off and I realized that I was not going to escape uh, that quickly. So I ended up crawling into uh, Coeur d'Alene, got a hotel room at a motel on Sherman Avenue, which is still there, as a matter of fact. Uh, and I was just spent, you know, emotionally, physically, mentally, and I was, I was at the end of myself. You know, my family was destroyed by grip on reality was destroyed. Uh, I had been convinced of my own uh, inadequacies and inability to self-govern, I guess. And about the only thing I had for any kind of comfort was a Gideon's Bible that was left in that hotel room. And it became clear to me that if... uh, I was not going to be allowed to leave. I had to find a different way to live. And that was the beginning of, uh, you know, of recovery from all that and an introduction in a deeper and more meaningful way to God's mercy. You know, the Lord had already done a work in my life by relieving me of the burden of alcohol abuse on a daily basis. So I had some understanding of what God's grace was about. But this was at a whole different level of surrender to his will versus my will. It became clear uh, to me that I couldn't continue to work in the way that I had been working. And I had a deep burden to do something about the abortion issue. If I was going to have to live, I had to do something to try to make amends to fix this uh, situation that I had helped create. And so uh, that next year in uh, January of 1995, uh, I got together with a few folks, including you and some other uh, former enemies of mine, and uh, we started Idaho Chooses Life. And uh, we are still at that work. Would have been uh, my preference to have fixed this, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. But today we are entering our 26th year of uh, labor in the field to try to change the culture and to try to change the understanding people have about the sacredness of life. And it's a privilege to continue to work in this. And I look forward to the day when we can uh, declare victory. And, you know, Dave, even as you're speaking, I such a heaviness, such a uh, sense, such a sense of awakening. Story, your awakening, maybe the people that are listening. 
to this episode, maybe they're awakening. So many people have either aborted their children or been with the people who have aborted their children. With roughly 70 million abortions having occurred since Roe v. Wade in America. And if you figure a factor of, let's just call it four people per family. Maybe it's the birth father. Maybe it's the mother or the father that took the young lady or the sister who took the professional to the abortion clinic. We're talking 280 million people that have fingerprints on this issue. Well, the fact of the matter is that uh, the wounds that we, that this society and culture has suffered because of its willful support of legalized abortion is untold and uncountable, really, except by the Lord. I mean, the fact is, if you look at, you know, except for one pregnancy in the history of man, there involves, there's a, not only the woman, there's the, there's the father, right? And uh, people continue to try to, it's part of the satanic cult of lying about what's going on here, right? This is a woman's issue. Well, the fact is it's a human being issue, right? Um, that baby didn't just materialize out of thin air, right? There's a father involved. And if you just stop the counting at the two sets of grandparents involved, right? So if you just stop the counting at six people, right, six survivors of that abortion, the loss that they've suffered, whether they account it or not, right, that is a profound spiritual and emotional wound, which is permanent, right? Most of, most of which we deny, most of that bloodshed and heartache and spiritual wound, it, we're all in denial about, right? Like, you know, I can relate to the uh, alcoholic who doesn't have a problem, right? I don't have a problem. I I was interviewed a week ago on Kevin Miller's show, and uh, there he asked me to respond to some woman who had just publicly proclaimed her the great pride she had in having killed her own child, right? What does that say about our culture? Well, what it says is that's the price of sin, right? So God gives us a conscience to repent, to lead us into right behavior, right? To know the difference between right and wrong. But when we turn our back on that conscience, right, we we will, we will ourselves to deny that conscience. We actually can begin to take pride in our own perversions, Right. And the truth is I'm not condemning the women who make that kind of statement because the fact is the whole society has been warped and twisted by abortion. The mechanical destruction of, you know, tens and tens of thousands of babies every year for years and decades, right? The price that we're paying to support that kind of regime is really beyond measure, and we have a society that is hurting. We have a society that has deep, deep wounds that are, you know, 
are showing up in all kinds of weird ways, right? Um, I think the transgender thing, I think the homosexual thing, I think there are so many symptoms of uh, and consequences of legalized abortion and the wound that we continue to inflict upon ourselves because we have turned our back on the gift of life, which is God's first gift to us, right? David, the application of your changed life found its way into a changed worldview and a new desire for you to use your skills for conservative causes. Was it was it awkward at first? Did you feel a little bit like Saul of Tarsus asking the early Christian church to trust me? Yeah, it was very difficult. The fact is, uh, you know, coming out of that suicide attempt and I mean the devastation of my life was fairly complete right at that time I was the uh I had closed my consulting firm and it was a the first uh political director of the Idaho Education Association they they brought me in full-time and on staff to better manage me I guess um and it was a great job and you know I had uh, I had arrived in a lot of ways um, but I, I quit my job because I could not support the pro-war politics of the union and virtually everybody they supported was a Democrat and, you know, abortion rights was n- not as crazy as it is now, right? In terms of, uh, the preoccupation of the Democratic Party with abortion, but it was, you know, a central tenet you know, back in the 90s. So I had no job. I had, you know, my family was destroyed. Um, everybody I knew, uh, my all my relationships were in jeopardy uh, because I, I was now a pro-life person, right? Um, my whole view of politics did not instantly undergo some change, right? Um, in fact, I remember back in those days, you and I having an argument about, well, a, a heated discussion, let's say, about homosexual rights and the impact of that. And we had some strong disagreements, and you were very tolerant and patient with me about that, saying, well, listen, you know, I don't need to convince you of this. You know, if you stick with the Lord, these things will be revealed to you in his time as you heal up and you begin to learn more from him, um, which is proven true, as a matter of fact. But anyway, at that point, I was, uh, you know, pretty much, the wipeout was pretty much thorough, right? And I had virtually nobody to talk to. The only people I knew were the people that I had been engaged in trying to defeat, uh, one of whom was you. And Gary Glenn was another, right? And uh, Kelly Walton was another. People that were, you know, my arch enemies, uh, you know, just a few minutes ago, right? But the fact is I had 
no better idea about I, I needed to talk to somebody about what to do with myself. I even just talking to somebody, right? And um, the Lord kicked me along and had me reach out to you and to Gary and Kelly. And um, I found myself in conversations with the three of you together and, in, you know, independently. He welcomed me with the arms of Christ and gave me a place to go, a, you know, a, a warmth and a hospitality that gave me the ability to live, actually. You know, those first, those first months in that summer of 94 were very difficult. They were very lonely, and, uh, you know, and I, I, I craved the word, but I craved fellowship. And I needed a place to go to talk about what was happening and what to do next and how to do, how to learn how to live again but in a different way. And the fellowship that you and others provided me, despite the history we had, was very, it was, it was Christ made real, right? It was Christ, it was the Word of God made real. And honestly, I don't think without the three of you in particular, I don't know that I would have survived. I don't think I would have had the will to survive um, because it was a one one day at a time kind of experience. David, how did the uh, how did the legislators accept the new identity, the new David Ripley? These were many people who had seen you destroy their friends politically. Oh, yeah, there's there was you know I had defeated a lot of great legislators, a lot of pro-life legislators in the years prior to that. Um, I remember one, I went to have lunch with Gary Glenn. He was in the, on the county commission at the time. And he invited me to uh, come and have lunch with him. And so I, I met him at the courthouse downtown. And we were walking through the lobby heading toward, uh, you know, some sandwich place around there. And across the lobby, he sees... Bob Forey, and he's like, hey, Bob. And Bob turns around, and I I just wanted to die. I'm not kidding you, because uh, about four years before that, I had I had run a primary campaign against Bob, and it was probably among the more vicious uh, and brutal campaigns I'd ever run, and we'd beaten him. Um, and it was particularly noteworthy that I had used uh, in some of our mailers, I had actually used scripture uh, to uh, undermine the confidence of the Christian community in Nampa with Bob, right? So uh, he was just about the last person I wanted to see. And he comes bouncing across the, you know, lobby in the courthouse and I just wanted to run. I mean, I just couldn't believe Gary did that. You know, I was like, no, I do not want to talk to Bob for you of all people, okay? <laughs> and uh, and Gary, of course, is just immune to that sort of thing. And he just said, Bob, look, I'm having lunch with David Ripley. And Bob looks at me 
And I'm just holding my breath, waiting for him to, you know, give me the shellacking that I deserved, really. And he comes up to me, and he sticks his hand out, and he gives me this smile, and he says, I've heard about what's happening in your life. And I just want you to know that I love you and Jesus loves you. And he gave me a hug in the middle of the lobby. And given where I was at, now, of course, that seems quite usual, normal, you know, in the body of Christ. But in those weeks following that, you know, devastation in my life, that was not normal, right? That was not the way political enemies dealt with one another. And even though I wasn't really his enemy anymore, in fact, I had become his brother in Christ. For him to deal with me that way was just one of the more memorable things of my of my life, and especially from those days. And just as an aside, I'll tell you that when we started I Don't Choose His Life, Bob uh, and his wife became board members. They are founding board members of the ministry and, um, you know, uh, all three of the men I mentioned earlier, you and Kelly Walton and Gary Glenn have all played instrumental roles uh, in in supporting the ministry and supporting the work that God gave me to do. And it's just one of those things that's just so powerful and such an example of God's grace in my life and the way the body of Christ works. Recently, you've, you've entered into two government-slash-legal controversies, Crisis Standards of Care, and you also filed an amicus brief with the U.S. Supreme Court in the Dobbs case. Let's start with the Crisis Standards of Care. What is it, and why should business leaders and citizens and others really be concerned about it well of course you know we've been talking about abortion and that is uh you know one of our primary functions but about 10 years ago uh i get a call from wesley smith uh and i'd i'd read a couple of his books um i had i still have them actually and i had never talked to him in my life i answered the phone and he said is this david ripley and i said yes and he said well this is wesley smith i go and i'm like the Wesley Smith, he said, yeah, so what's going on in Idaho? Right. I go, uh, well, I don't really know how to answer that question, right? And he was just livid, right? And he just reamed me up and down. Now, for the people that don't know him, what was his background, pro-life or, or he is, uh, and He is one of the country's leading experts on end-of-life issues. End-of-life. And... Uh, he said, well, there's this bill. I'm reading it right now. There's this bill going through the legislature, and uh, I can't believe it. I, don't you even know about it? And I was like, no, I don't. I'm sorry. And he, just, and finally, uh, after about 25 minutes of this, I just said, well, you know, I just need to beg off here because I, I clearly am not up to speed. I need a chance to look at this legislation, and I need to uh, get back. To, can I call you back tomorrow? He said, fine, and he hung up on me, right? I mean, he <laughs> was one. Mission. He was one. You know, and I was pretty embarrassed and taken aback, right? 
because I had immense respect for him, and uh, I was certainly hoping that would not be the first conversation I'd ever have with the man. So anyway, I looked up the bill, and I find out that the bill passed the Senate 35 to nothing about two days before. And I was thinking, well, there's a lot of good guys up there, right? So he must have something wrong. Uh, so I get the bill and I print it off and I start reading through it. And I got to about, it was like a 50 some page bill. I got through like the fourth page of it. And I was like, okay, I'm beginning to get the picture here, right? By the time I was halfway through, I was like, I can't believe this bill. How in the world could this get through the Senate, right? By the end, I realized that we had a genuine crisis because the the hospital association, and all the hospitals were back in this bill, okay? This was um, St. Al, St. Luke's, uh, all the hospital association was back in this thing. And what it did was it's it remains the worst bill I have ever seen in the Idaho legislature, and that's 26 years and counting. That bill would have allowed hospitals to discharge patients with two weeks' notice if they determined that continued care was futile, and they never quite defined what futile was, right? A patient's family or the patient had no right of appeal no right for a second opinion or an outside opinion. If that hospital decided that you were no longer worthy of care, you had two weeks to leave. And by leave, I mean vacate your bed, right? Or vacate your body. Well, that's essentially, right, what what they're talking about. Families did not, they were, the bill actually restricted you and made it illegal to go to court. So, which I, I was like, how, how could he even do that, right? So if they were getting ready to evict your father or wife, right, um, you could not, the family had no right to go to court to seek an injunction or to stop that, um, either even to get more time, right? If you couldn't find another facility to accept that loved one who was in some state of, you know, suffering perhaps and at the end of their life, right? And there was no right to appeal except you could file an appeal with the committee of the hospital that made the decision to terminate the life of your loved one, right? Oh, that seems fair. <clears throat> yeah, it was My pretty cool. My heavens. Anyway. The, um, the gatekeepers. Right. I don't, I don't want to go. I mean, that's all ancient history. We right. did get the bill killed. Yeah. But that was my baptism by drowning almost in end-of-life issues. Uh, and it was um, it was a go-to-school kind of thing where I learned that Marcus Welby, MD, didn't exist anymore, especially at the hospital administrative level, right? That there was a new ethic that had developed in medicine, which was not built on the Hippocratic Oath. It was built upon an arrogance about how smart these people were and how they were happy to be the gatekeepers of life, right? So as I said, we got that bill killed, but it uh, we beat them politically, but I have no illusions that we 
made any impact on their worldview, right? You know, when we come back, I want you to take that and move it into the crisis standards because that really was the origin of it. So let's, uh, let's come back here in just a second. information to think about hospitals and administrators 10 years ago and you know you, you took care of that you ended it but a form of it began the process of rising up from those ashes i don't know if it's the next generation or or what but crisis standard of care explain that Right, so in December, well, November, I guess, of 2020 is where, you know, we're all COVID aware and COVID sick and COVID, I'm sick of talking about it, right? Uh, I ran across this news story which said that the uh, Department of Health and Welfare had just adopted a crisis standards of care plan. Now, that caught my attention because of that experience 10 years ago with the hospitals, right? And I was like, uh, I need to figure out what this is. Most legislators, in fact, I would say virtually no legislator and not many people in the public paid any attention to it. I made it my business, however, to get a hold of that plan. And it was about a 45-page plan uh, that allowed for health care rationing in the state of Idaho if the director declared that we, had, that we had reached our capacity to do business as normal, right? So when you say health care rationing, you mean them determining who will get health care? Well, yeah. So the basics of this are a crisis is declared which says uh, our ability to continue to practice medicine and provide health care to everybody as we want to, we have exceeded our ability to do that. We have a situation, a crisis, right? So we have to begin limiting, rationing, and uh, administering health care services and it's very important people grasp this. This is not just COVID patients. This is healthcare for everybody in the state of Idaho, regardless of whether you have a broken arm, a heart attack, cancer, you've just you know encountered a traffic accident, or you have COVID. And other states across the United States are watching this happen in the small state of Idaho. I think Alaska uh, was determining whether they'd go in this direction. But to the best of my memory, this was Idaho was the very first state to begin this, correct? Well, I would imagine of virtually all states, as they were dealing with, you know, the waves of the up and down of COVID, you know, uh, presentations at hospitals, 
I would imagine almost every state has some kind of crisis standards of care plan, right? And I believe in planning, right? Planning is a good thing, right? Uh, so I didn't object to the fact that there was a plan. I thought it was very important, however, that the legislature engage in reviewing the plan. And began. I began agitating during the last legislative se- session, January, I started urging that there be legislative oversight hearings to bring in all these medical experts to review the criteria that they were proposing to use to evaluate patients to determine who gets what kind of care, right? I thought it was very important that the people of Idaho participate in this discussion, that there even be a discussion, right? It is entirely moral and ethical to have an emergency triage plan. It's just reality, right? On the battlefield, you have X number of wounded soldiers and you've got X number of Band-Aids and bandages and morphine and two guys, you know, for a unit, right? Decisions have to be made about who is most likely to survive and so forth. Hurricanes, right? That kind of thing. Uh, And certainly I do not deny that we have a problem with COVID. No doubt about that. The question is, this is not a battlefield. This is not a hurricane. This is probably going to be with us forever. And the question is, what values are being brought to bear on assigning health care? What kind of work is being done to meet the increased demand for health care services so that we can avoid rationing, choosing between patients, right? I was never able to get a hearing in the legislative session. When we were coming out of this session, um, the uh, sense was that we had turned the corner on COVID, that the number of cases, the number of hospitalizations, the rate of you know death attributed to COVID was declining. And so it really wasn't that urgent of a thing. I had a sense that that was probably going to be a short-term deal. And sure enough, we get to about uh, three weeks, well, we're almost a month into it now. The state of Idaho did, in fact, declare a health care emergency. In fact, it's interesting. When the state declared that, it made news nationally. Well, internationally. Right, because we were the first state in the country to actually impose crisis standards of care on its people and on the hospital system. And that, of course, made all the work and all the research I had done previous to this much more uh, urgent, right? And we are still, as of this recording, we are still in crisis standards of care, about a month of it. Uh, the Another state has joined us. I think Alaska has made a similar declaration. I find it very strange that we have this in the state of Idaho. Uh, and in my, I've, I've probably spoken with well north of 35 legislators by now. 
uh, and in one-on-one conversations about crisis standards of care. I've been pretty surprised by the lack of awareness, even by legislative leaders, as to what this means. The CEO of St. Luke's, in a public interview a couple of weeks ago, said they are not in the in the St. Luke system at least. They are not choosing one patient over another yet. What they are doing is providing substandard care to all patients. Now think about that for just a minute. Substandard care to all patients. That means that whether you're a kid, whether you're an old person, whether you have any kind of medical condition, you are not getting the best medical care to alleviate that, you know, trouble, right, at the St. Luke system. And one of the questions that comes to mind is this. Uh, I know a little bit about the law, right? Malpractice, a malpractice case. Not that I'm here to advocate for trial lawyers, but it's an important mechanism for accountability, right? We give doctors in this society immense power. Now, they have to work years and years to acquire the knowledge that that enables us to have that kind of trust in them, right? Most of us have, we've had life-saving care by people trained, nurses, doctors, right? Surgeons, cardiologists, uh, and we give them as a society tremendous power to give us drugs in terms of regulating and, and offering, you know, medical care and procedures. But there's also a lot of accountability, right? Over their head swings the sword of malpractice cases, right? They are, if they're wrong, they pay. Now, every case that's ever been done in a malpractice environment the lawyer goes to the jury and says, this woman died wrongfully, right? Because the doctors or hospitals did not provide the standard of care required in her circumstance with her condition, with her pre-existing conditions, right? So a malpractice case is successful when a lawyer can convince a jury that the hospital or doctor involved provided substandard care, right? In that circumstance. So for the head of St. Luke's to announce publicly that all of their patients are now receiving substandard care is the kind of admission, you might as well have a neon sign out, right? Sue us, sue us, right? We We are messing up everybody that comes in the building, right? No, who would say that? That's craziness, right? Unless crisis standards of care means that hospitals and doctors operating underneath it right now are provided a legal shield by the state of Idaho because of the declaration. And I'm 90... And therefore cannot be... Cannot be sued sued. uh, because they are operating under the direction of the state of Idaho. So St. Luke's is probably not worried about getting served with a 
lawsuit, right? Because grandma died because she was, nobody gave her the right drug or the right, you know, surgery. Because the St. Luke's attorneys will be able to say, we feel bad, real bad. But if you want to sue anybody, go see Dave Jepson at the Department of Health and Welfare or sue the state of Idaho because we're just doing what they we're told us we should of do. Them. So, so at this case, um, what do you see as the future for the solution of this very unique um, situation that Idaho and the citizens of Idaho have entered into so that a reconciliation of common sense and less sanity could occur to the legislature? Well, the fact is, I think the people of Idaho need some accountability here. And the way we, the easiest way for that to happen is through our elected representatives. Uh, I continue to agitate for public hearings, and I don't mean a 10-minute dog and pony show. I mean in-depth legislative hearings in which the hospitals, the Department of Health and Welfare is brought in and on the record in front of the public and media and asked questions. I am not accusing anybody of anything. I want to make that perfectly clear. I don't have answers. I don't have much data. How many people are being turned away? How many people might be dying because they were denied interventions? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm trying to find out the answer to those questions. But the fact is what really needs to happen is that we need those answers on the record in the public arena to the legislature so that the people of Idaho can get an accounting. How long is it going to last? How long does this substandard care last? What is the state of Idaho doing to get out from underneath this? Providing the resources hospitals might need in terms of staff, facilities, beds, so that everybody can get the quality of care, the best medical care that, that we have come to expect and assume is available to us. When we return, I'd like to, to um, branch off of that, uh, specifically that a small state, state of Idaho, is in fact leading the way, not because we want to be, but because we have to be, on asking for this accountability. The small state of Idaho may, through our governor and our, our um, House and Senate, have those hearings. We, we hope that, that they do. Uh, that would be the goal. Uh, if people want to get in contact with you, David, what's the website that they can go to and, and or the phone number that you would love to talk with them and see how you can encourage them for legislative um, letters to the legislators, et cetera. Well, I appreciate that. Um, IdahoChoosesLife.org is our website. You can email me through the website. Um, I'm interested in hearing from people uh, that are families or uh, folks that are having direct contact with hospitals and are suffering the consequences of crisis standards of care. 
They might not tell you that, right? They might not tell you this is why we're sending you home. Um, but one of the things that really concerns me about this is that the people of Idaho are not being well served by this. And not to cast aspersions on any on the hospitals or the department, but the fact that we have a, a public admission that we are providing substandard care. I have gotten information from people uh, alleging that if you are unvaccinated, you are much less likely to receive uh, treatment at area hospitals. Uh, you are much less likely to be admitted, regardless of what your medical condition might be. Those are the kinds of stories that we need to collect. And, and part of what concerns me about the way this is going down is that people are being denied care one at a time. Families are operating in isolation, right? There is no interest in the media, by the hospitals, perhaps even by the department to get information about what kind of impact this is having uh, on real people, how many people might have died as a result of crisis standards of care, I don't know. But if you know, I would like to hear from you. Again, it would be IdahoChoosesLife.org. Yes, sir. IdahoChoosesLife.org. And you can uh, email David Ripley through that. When we come back, we're going to touch briefly on what may be one of the most pivotal things that Idaho, a very small state, could have could be doing on the pro-life issue directly regarding Roe v. Wade. David, let's now move on to the second major issue, the U.S. Supreme Court and the Dobbs case. In a nutshell, what's the case about, and how did a public policy ministry like yours, you know, from one of the smallest states in the Union, find itself filing a friend-of-the-court brief for a case of this magnitude? Well, uh, as I mentioned, we've been... We've been working, uh, you know, for 26 years. And and back in the day when, you know, I, I began to look at ways to undo the damage I had done uh, as a card-carrying socialist pro-abortion kind of guy. You know, I had to go to school. I had to, I had to learn about... The law I had to learn, I had to study the Supreme Court decisions. I had to figure out how to organize a political message around the pro-life issue that would be effective, right? And that's a long time ago, and it never, you know, the desire, my heart's desire was to find some way to make that argument to the people who could decide differently. And I'm so grateful to the Lord that he gave us literally the opportunity to do just that. This year we 
we worked with several other pro-life groups around the country, hired an amazing woman to as our attorney who filed a brief in the Dobbs case. The uh, Supreme Court uh, just opened its term. It agreed last term to take the Dobbs case. The Dobbs case is, uh, comes out of Mississippi, and it is not any other abortion case. It's, I mean, there have been many abortion cases over the time that I've been doing this work, parental consent cases and informed consent cases and so forth. But this is a seminal case. And we need people praying for the Supreme Court with earnestness because uh, we have, for the first time since 1992, the Supreme Court has decided to re-examine the fundamentals of Roe. And it is so difficult, and even with all those years and all those cases, it is so difficult to get a case of this type in front of the court. So in actuality, you go back to the history of abortion in America. You have Roe v. Wade in 1973. The court did not reconsider Roe despite all the shock and um, awe and horror of its original decision in 1973. It did not reconsider that until 1992 in the Casey decision. There was great hope that Casey would represent a reversal, and the court was on the verge of reversing. Sandra Day O'Connor was the uh, author of that opinion in 1992, and rumors are that she was circulating a draft to overturn Roe, but was dissuaded at the last moment so what we got was a watered-down version of Roe. It gave the pro-life movement a whole new range of tools with which to fight abortion, but it upheld Roe in its principle. It's taken all these years to get this case back in front of the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has made it clear in its order from a year ago, what it is considering. And what it is considering is the question of viability, which is one of the great, you know, lies of the whole Roe regime. When the court handed down its decision in 1973, it said states could not interfere with abortion prior to viability. After viability, the states had limited ability to intervene and to protect the life of the innocent. This court has said, we're going to re-examine the question of viability. The brief that I don't choose as life has filed attacks the whole concept of viability and reviews the cynicism of the Supreme Court and the cynicism of our legal system, which has had this pretense that there's a real thing called viability that means something, 
states have attempted to get the court to define what viability is, both in terms of, you know, length, depth in the pregnancy, what that means as a legal concept or even a medical concept. And the court has dodged that ever since Roe. And our brief points out the fact that that idea is made up, is a very cynical ploy to pretend that we are not killing babies from the beginning of conception to birth. The reality is in America, we are one of only seven countries in the world that allows for the killing of preborn children up to birth. And the only actual limitation on killing is the birth canal. The only limitation in place on when you cannot kill a baby any longer is when the baby is being birthed. That is the partial birth abortion ban, which was finally upheld on the second time through the court uh, in 2003. What a... What an unbelievable situation. It is unbelievable. The barbarity, the barbarity that we are tolerating, right, as a culture and society. And, the, and here's what I will say. The fight we've had over euthanasia, um, cases like Terry Schiavo, um, denying food and water patients, which is part of, by the way, the current crisis standards of care document in the Department of Health and Welfare's advise, you know, advisory bulletins to hospitals. And abortion, end of life and abortion are inextricably linked, not just because we're talking about life, but we're talking about a philosophy and a morality and a mentality. I believe that end of life issues have become center stage because we have tolerated abortion. We have decided to be God. We get to decide that's not a life until I decide it's going to be a life. That's not a human being until it's convenient for me for it to be a human being or it becomes so difficult to deny its existence, right, that I have to accept its humanity. And this, this sin breeds sin, right? We don't, <laughs> the, the, the contagion of sin is not limited to the one thing. It corrupts your whole worldview over time. It kills your conscience. It allows, I think, the medical community, which has long tolerated abortion, it has long embraced abortion. That is what has led to end-of-life problems and a mentality that says that doesn't value that life in and of itself. It treats life as in a utilitarian terms. And we are beginning to reap more of the whirlwind that we've sown. David Ripley, I have hope and you have hope. And our hope is anchored to the love of God through Christ Jesus through, in this world, doing the best we can with what we've got, given, if you will, the new Roman Empire that we face. Okay? 
uh, Saul of Tarsus changed his name. His name was changed to Paul. And Paul spent the remainder of his life, the Bible tells us, taking the words of Jesus and applying them to the way of life, the ways of life, ultimately expressing to all who would hear and all who didn't want to hear that there was there was a time coming. It may not be in this earth, but it certainly could be. That Christ would return and make all things right. And David, you are a watchman on the wall, if you will. You're a, you've got a prophetic voice for all who listen to you today. They could tell, I'm certain, that you have a viewpoint and a vantage point far different than anybody they've ever heard. For that, I want to just tell you thank you. Thank you for giving to the Lord because there are many, many children who are now young adults who were born and are alive and enjoying life because you stood in the gap and you said, these are children. and They were actually born. And they are now having children. So with that in mind, I just want to say thank you, Dave. Thank you for being open to the voice of God, open to the love of Christ. And thank you for allowing those of us in those early days, and even now, all these decades later, to hold you up and say, keep going, Dave. We believe in you. I'm, I'm honored. My family's honored. Ladies and gentlemen, David Thank Ripley, you, Dennis. thanks. And I, I just, uh, you know, you're precious to me. And throughout all the, these years, you've been, you've been one of the uh, helpmates, you know, the Lord has given me. And you've been, a, you've been faithful. And, um, you know, early on in this fight, I, I was uh, waiting f- to figure out when we win, Right. It was always, when are we going to win? When is this going to be over? When are we going to have victory? And the fact of the matter is that uh, the Lord showed me probably 10, 12 years into this, that's really none of my business, right? My job is to continue to fight and to apply his truth to the you know politics and the situations, right, involving life. It's his job to decide when it will be over. I am 100% certain we win. I, I, I don't know when, but that's not my business. David, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you, Dennis. I'm Dennis Mansfield, your host for Just Around the Corner. Thanks to Colin Mansfield and Michael Seals for production work on today's episode, and to Kevin Miller in the morning for his inspiration. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Just Around the Corner with Dennis Mansfield. Take time to think about and enjoy the things you do have and the things that might still be coming your way. You know, John Hay, one of the world's most famous men of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, once wrote to a friend, all the best gifts are just around the corner.